The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We're in the book of Exodus. Um, and so as a church family, we, we like uh, the Bible. Uh, we love to sort of walk through books of the Bible where we can. Uh, we think it's really, really helpful. Um, and we also are a church who believe that the Old Testament, the, the sort of first half, if you like, of the Bible is actually really, really important to how we understand the New Testament. And so we've actually titled this Exodus with a subtitle, The Gospel According to Moses. And our, our belief is, is that this Old Testament ancient story is actually telling us something about Jesus. It's telling us something about what Jesus would do in the future and for us what Jesus has done uh, in the past. And so uh, each week, hopefully, if you've been here with us for a little while, you're going to see little things of like, oh, yeah, that's, okay, that's, that's kind of pointing to something that would be really accomplished, fully accomplished. Um, and today is one of those weeks where it's like super clear. Um, it's really telling us a whole lot of stuff about Jesus, which is uh, really, really cool. So a little quick recap. Okay, the people of God, Israel, they've been in slavery for 400 years uh, to the Egyptians. And then God has worked through his man, Moses, to deliver them. Um, and they kind of had a, a bunch of plagues and one plague after another coming back to Pharaoh and Pharaoh eventually would go, yeah, they can go. No, they can't go. And there's just kind of this big sort of uh, battle, uh, it seems, between God and Pharaoh, but really it's between God and the gods of Egypt. And so God is just one after another just showing them, listen, there is no other gods. There is one God. His name is Yahweh. And this is what he does. He frees his people. And so eventually... The last one happens, they flee, and with the, the, the enemy behind them and then the waters in front of them, they, they basically uh, get to this point where it's like, well, what's God going to do? And God parts the Red Seas. It's one of those stories of the Bible. People are like, really? That really happened? Um, yeah, we believe it did. God parts the seas. They walk across, and then God sort of destroys their enemies. And as they get over to this next part of the land, what do they do? They sing, they rejoice, they celebrate, which is what they should do. And so at the end of last sort of scene, if you want to say, or the last episode, we're supposed to be left with, okay, well, what's next for God's people? He's taken them out of slavery. He's taking them to the promised land. What's going to happen in between? What happens next? And so we're picking it up from chapter 15, verse 22. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. Uh, if not, I've got some of these on the screen for you. But it starts off, this section starts off and it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. Remember in the story, every time that Moses came with Aaron to Pharaoh, he would say, Let my people go and let us go where? Into the wilderness. They want to go into the wilderness. That's where God had said that they would go. That's where God had them to, to kind of go uh, basically from slavery and they're getting promised to go into this, this promised land and they are led into this thing called the wilderness. What is the wilderness? Well, in many ways, the wilderness is the gap between slavery and glory. Wilderness is the gap between the two. This is where you've come from, that's where you're going, and there is this in between. If you've been a Christian for a while, this is one of the things that we know but sometimes are frustrated by. We wish that we could go from not being Christians 
to just being all put together and everything being fixed and we're in glory, right? How many of you would have loved to have just become a Christian and then bang, go to heaven? There's a few of us here. Most of the younger generation didn't put up their hands. A few of us older ones were like, yeah, hurry up. Uh, Let's just do this thing. Um, What is the wilderness? Well, the wilderness is the process. Wilderness is the journey. The wilderness in the Old Testament is basically what we call in the New Testament sanctification. It is we have come from here and we're going there, but there is a journey to be had in between. And there is something that God wants to do. That is that God doesn't want to just deliver us out of Egypt. He wants to deliver Egypt out of us. So that when he gets us to the place of glory, we are his people as the way he intended us to be. He is putting us together. He is realigning us. He is making us, as the New Testament says, new. And sometimes that's frustrating because we don't, we don't enjoy process. Working out, eating right. I don't want to have to do any of that to, to get the thing. I just want to just, why couldn't God have just given me the thing? It's like, no, you've got to do some work, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to eat right, you've got to work out, you've got to run, and then you get the reward. This is how this thing works. The Bible tells us, how does God sanctify His people? How does He change His people? Well, there are things throughout the Bible uh, that tells us what He uses. He uses His Word, okay, the Bible. God uses this, so every time you're reading this, you're hearing this, it's doing something in you to change you. Uh, there's the Holy Spirit, okay? The Holy Spirit does work in us to transform us and change us. There's the body of Christ or the church itself. As we are encouraged by each other, challenged by each other, we changed. But there's another thing that the Bible uses is trials and testings. There are these situations in which we find ourselves in that are moments for us to lean into Jesus, And so this particular verse continues on in verse 25. It says, And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently, listen to this, listen to the voice of the Lord your God. This is what this whole thing is about. This is what the wilderness is all about. Learn to listen to me. Learn to trust me. Learn to know who I am, that you would listen and trust me that you would listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer. In the New Testament, this this idea of trials and testing comes up multiple times. James 1, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete. That means mature. You, you may grow, lacking in nothing. In First Peter, it's put this way. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This, this idea of trial and testing here in the New Testament, it's this sense, it's, it's not... It's not temptation. That's what the enemy does. The enemy tries to tempt God's people in order that they would stumble. God tests his people so that these things would become stepping stones, not stumbling blocks. That they would be things that we'd work through and grow through. And at the other end, we come out stronger. We come out better. We come out more like Jesus than if we didn't go through these things. And Jesus, the Son of God, 
had this moment where he gets baptized and the father is there and the father says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And then the very words that are used in both Matthew, Mark and Luke all say, and the spirit led or the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Why? Because now we're going to have him tested to see whether he truly is who God says he is. And what does he do? He listens to the words of God in that wilderness for 40 days and he uses God's word and he trusts his father and he doesn't do what we're about to see the Israelites do, the people of God. If someone says that they're a professional runner, how would you know that that's what they are? What would you do? What do you want to see? You want to see them dance? No, you want to see them what? Run. Okay, you're a runner. I want to test you and see you run. If you're a builder, if I was to say to you, I'm a builder, you don't even have to come and test me. See, just go ask my wife and she'll tell you, not the builder, not, not the builder. The talker, definitely the talker. Talk, talk a good talk, not build a good build. A musician, I'm really, I'm a really great guitarist. How would you know? Well, you'd watch me. You would test me. If I'm a soldier, you would watch me in battle. How do you know if someone is a Christian? You watch their lives, particularly in struggles. And this is what the Bible does. See, Carly and I have been through some tough times. We've been married nearly 20 years. It's been really hard on her. <laughs> uh, there have been times, and the way that we test and the way that we see whether we are genuinely covenanted in this thing in marriage is not through the blissful, glorious times of going on holidays. It's when we're going through a tough time, and then we come out of that tough time, and we are still together, and we go, nothing can break this marriage. Why? Because we've been through this, and been through this, and been through this, and we are together. And it's the same with Christian faith. How do you know that God has you and that you have God? Well, you watch over time and you go through different trials and you go through different struggles and at the end, you're still clinging to Jesus because Jesus is still clinging to you and you can go, I know I'm saved. Why? Because Jesus has me. I'm still his. And this is what we're seeing in this story. This is what it's pointing to for the New Testament believer. Godliness in the Christian story is not measured by the absence of problems. Godliness is seen, Christ-likeness is seen in our response to trials, response to difficulties. And so there are going to be three tests that we're going to see happens with the people of Israel. Number one is the test of water. It says that they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now, remember, different times in Exodus, we're moving fast. Sometimes we're moving slow. Sometimes there's a sentence like, bang, that's been 40 years. Uh, in, in, the, in the 10th plague, you've got the Passover. It's like one whole day really extended out. Well, this is three days. So it's slowing down again. This is three days. And they're in the desert. And when you've been three days in the desert and you run out of water, you get pretty thirsty. And so is this a legitimate concern? Yeah. It's like, man, one day and we need to drink water. Three days in the desert. It's hot. We're running out of water. But remember, it's three days from the biggest miracle they've ever seen. It's three days from the parting of the Red Sea. <laughs> How's their faith levels in God going? He just did that for them. What about the water? Where's the water? 
And this idea of being led into the wilderness of Shur, Shur is essentially the boundary line of Egypt. So Egyptians would constantly move out their walls as to their boundaries to say, yeah, now we rule that. Yeah, now we rule that. And Shur is their very, very last borderline. So not only has he cut them off through the Red Sea, but he's also saying, we're going to go beyond the extension of their realm and their reign. Okay, I'm going to take you beyond. They can't get you here. So he's doing something great and they're still doubting that he has good for them. God has separated them from their enemy. He's taking them beyond the realms of which Egypt can go. And he's saying, you are free. You are free. And they're like, yeah, but what about our water? We need water. Grumbling for the Hebrews is a response to a heart that doesn't trust God. God is not against us coming to him and saying we have needs. Because what you're going to see in this story is that's what Moses keeps doing. Moses keeps going to God and praying. The Hebrews just keep whinging and grumbling amongst each other. In verse 25a, Moses shows us the way that we are to take our needs and go to Yahweh. So he cries to God. You see, grumbling is an act of disbelief. Prayer is an act of faith. Grumbling says God's not doing. God won't do. God hasn't done. Prayer says God has done. God can do. God will do. Grumbling focuses on what we don't have or what God hasn't yet done. Prayer reminds us of what God has done. And this has been the story of humanity since the garden. See, in the garden, they are in an oasis where God has richly provided them everything they need. And initially, they're, they're, they're grateful. And then the enemy is able to get their eyes off all that God has for them, all that God has done, and put them onto the one thing, one tree with some fruit on it, and just says, but what about that thing? And all of a sudden, their heart's going from, wow, God has done so much, to like, yeah, why in the world would he hold out on us? And that that Shift of perception just means all of a sudden they are now doubting the goodness of God. And this has been the rhythm, the habits of which you and I find ourselves. It is really, really easy to get our eyes off all that God has done and to look at the very thing in front of us. And he doesn't want to say that he doesn't care about that. He wants us to say, hey, God, this is a need. Can I bring it to you? Because you've already met all of these. I'm confident that you can meet this. And so what does God do? Well, answer one, he gives them an abundance of water. 30, uh, 25, and he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. They get to drink sweet water. And then verse 27 says, then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. How does God respond to their whinging, to their moaning? He abundantly blesses them with tons of water. In fact, he says, listen, uh, I, I didn't want us to stop at Mara. I actually wanted us to get to Elam, okay, because there's where's the 12 springs. So I, didn't, I don't want you to camp here. So yes, I, I, know that it's not, I know that it's not the best of water, but I actually have better water for you. Can, can you trust me? Yes, I know it's not exactly what you thought you wanted or what you need, but I'm, not actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going beyond here. I'm going there. I'm taking you here. I haven't taken you out of Egypt to not give you decent water. Why would, I, why would I do that? And then comes test two, which is the food. So they remained at Elam for a number of weeks. 
Essentially, they're there for about a month, and then it says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 16, then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. Sinai is going to become a big deal. On the 15th day, the second month, and they had departed from the land of Egypt. So a month essentially has transpired. And when you've been in the desert for a month, um, your food rations are getting low, you're feeding all your animals, you, you get hungry, or you start to worry that there's not going to be enough food. It's like when a, a new variant of COVID comes and you, you just see the toilet paper aisle and you're just not sure. How much longer will this remain on here? And so then you take 12 baskets with you and you just make sure that your entire family is sorted. This is what they're worried about. Toilet paper. Notice that it's the whole congregation now that is grumbling. Negativity is contagious, right? Perception is contagious. But so is faith. And they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Ah, wow. That's like Christmas Day, and everybody's getting all their Christmas presents, and that one person is just like, well, I didn't really want that. I was hoping for, you know. It's kind of this moment, it's like, what, what are you kidding me? The whole congregation uh, are complaining and their vision is blurred. Essentially what they're saying is we'd rather be back in Egypt getting our backs whipped every day, having our women beaten every day, having our children beaten every day and forced to slave just so that we could eat. We'd rather be back there under the slavery of Pharaoh than to be out here in the freedom of Yahweh. Wow. Are you kidding me? This is crazy talk. This is, this is addictive talk. I'm no clinical psychologist, but I had a friend. And he was an addict. We did a few things. I don't talk about this a lot, but we did a few things in my day. And eventually he went on and became addicted to a really, really strong substance. And a whole lot of things happened, stealing started happening, stuff in the home was happening, and it got to a point where he was no longer allowed back into the home, all the friends and everybody had said, man, you've got to stop coming into our home and taking our parents' money, um, you can't do this, and it, he was starting to get more and more isolated, to the point where his sister wouldn't invite him to the wedding. And so on the day of her wedding, he rocks up, dad's at the front door, he says, but you, you can't be here, man, like, you've, you've caused so much destruction, you cannot be here on no day. So he put his dad through a window. His dad had to have a full jaw reconstruction, completely messed up the entire wedding day. Instead of going to jail, uh, he got put into rehab for two years. In that two years, I become a Christian, come to faith, find Jesus. He comes out of rehab, and within about a week, he hits me up and a bunch of us, us crew and says, hey, you want to hit, hit the valley? No, I don't want to go to the valley. I don't want you to go to the valley. Don't go to the valley. 
See, the thing that he had lived in and been in had blurred his vision so much that even though he'd been over here for two years getting off this, the remembering, the, the memory of all of those times was good. Only to one human being, him. My mate dissed me, never heard from him again, never saw him again until about 10 years ago when I went to the funeral of his father. I went to the funeral and I had to make an apology for my friend because he could not be there, not because he was in rehab, but because he was now incarcerated. When I read this story, I'm like, that sounds like my friend who for some reason cannot remember the past through any other lens than positive, even though it was destructive. And I have no idea how he can see that other than to say, that's the viewpoint, that's how addicts work. They, they, they just are so blurred in their perception. These people have a blurred perception. They are freed from Pharaoh. They are freed from slavery. They are going to get given a Sabbath day, a day that they don't have to work to tell them that this is what it looks like to to follow God, to follow Yahweh. He doesn't enslave you. He frees you. He even actually says, hey, I'm going to put in rules to make sure you don't work. I'm going to do the exact opposite of these guys. It's one thing to be freed externally from our past. It's one thing to be freed externally from our pain and our addictions. But it's another thing to be freed internally. And I thank Jesus that he is not settling with just the external. That Jesus has more for you than just saving you and forgiving you. He wants to transform you. He wants to radically change your life because he loves you. He has better for you than what you think. Tim Keller notes, That Exodus makes no sense if you don't understand Deuteronomy 8. If you read Deuteronomy 8, this is what it says. It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Why? To humble you and test you in order that you know what is in your heart. It's the idea that God is going deeper into our hearts. And this is the part that, I'm going to be honest, if you're not a Christian, this is the part that's actually the hardest. This is the part is like, just has anyone ever said this? Just, just leave me alone. Stop, stop trying to get into my world, man. Like, just, just, just forgive me and then leave me. <laughs> There's been times like, I don't want to have to deal with my past. I don't have to deal with my hurt. I don't want to, in here, uh, just close the door, lock it up, compartmentalize. It doesn't exist. It's gone. And God's like, no, 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 no. I don't want you to take that into the promised land. I don't, want to take you, I, don't want to take, I don't want you to take that into glory. Let's do some work. So that when you get there, Egypt's not in you. When you get there, that thing is no longer determining you, defining you, controlling you, that you are truly, deeply, wholeheartedly free. And I can tell you, if you're not yet a Christian, this is what God wants to do with you. He wants to free you from everything so that you can experience what real, true, eternal life feels like. And so why are they in the wilderness? Well, God has led them there. Why do they come to the bitter waters of Mara? Because God has led them there. Why are they here now? Because God has led them there. And God wants them to know, I'm leading you. I'm guiding you. Trust. Trust me. So what does God do? What's the answer? He gives an abundance of food. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. That's amazing. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather. So each day they're going to get, get, go get their food. 
And on that sixth day, they're going to gather enough and God's going to sustain them for, for two days. And he's just like, trust me, I'm going to provide for you. In this section, we, we'll move quickly, but four times they grumble and complain. It's, when we read it, it's sad. It's sad because we know the end of the story, right? But if you think about it from their perspective, they're, they're still... They're st- still fresh out of Egypt and they're not sure who to trust yet. And so what does God do? He gives an abundance of food. The Lord, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. It's abundance. Then you shall know that I'm the Lord your God. Then you will know to trust me. Verse 13 says, in the evening quail came up and covered the camp and the morning dew laid around the camp. The interesting thing about quail is in Egypt, that was, a, that was a delicacy. That was royal food. Only, only royalty got to eat it. So not only is God giving them quantity, he's also saying, hey, you know the good stuff? That's what I'm giving you. And I'm gonna give it to you. Have it. Enjoy it. Be filled with it. I'm giving you the thing that they said. You can't come and sit at the table with us, big, big, big people. You can't sit here and eat our food. You, you get this, this cruddy food. You, you work every day. You work hard. You don't get a day off. And then you eat just that. Now, you don't get our food, and God's like, ah, turn it around, flip it. Hey, you know the thing that they thought was a delicacy? It's all yours. This is an abundant God. This is an incredibly awesome God. And when Jew had gone up, there was on the face, uh, sorry, and when the Jew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what the heck is this? For they did not know what it was, and Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Eat it. Psalm 78, 27 puts it this way, he rained down meat on them like dust. God provides at the exact right time, in abundance, at the exact right place for his people. And then God would do this every single day. It moves from being quail to being manna and every day they would go out there and God has provided once again to feed them in a desert. It's amazing. Number three. Test three is the test of water again. 17.1 says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you keep quarreling with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirst there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt? Listen to them. To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. And he called the place, the name of that place, Massa and Meribah. Meribah sounds great. It sounds like just ribs. That's all I hear is meat and ribs. It's wonderful. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, we don't pick this up, but Rephidim literally means the resting place. God is going, hey, I'm taking you out of here, which was just filled with anxieties and pressures and stress. And I'm taking you over here. And on the way to the glory place, there's this resting place for you. And at this resting place, it doesn't just say that they whinge and complain. It says that they test God. Who, who in the story has been doing the testing so far? 
It's been God testing them, right? And now they're testing him. Well, let's see who you are. They have inverted the roles. This is, this is crazy. They are challenging God. They're demanding for provision, give us water. They're denying his protection. Did you bring us out here to die? And they're doubting his presence. Like, is he even here with us? Oh man, I've asked that question. Man, have I asked that question. As a, as a pastor, I get the great privilege of walking with people through difficult times. And it blows me away how present God is. And then one day it's my turn. And I'm like, man, you were there for them. Where are you for me? Have you asked that? What are you doing? I can't see you. I don't know. Like, are you here? Do you care? Man, when I, when I read this, I'm like, this, this, this is me. This is us. And God wants to show you that he is there. Yahweh, God, with us. So how does God respond? He responds not simply with an abundance of water, but an abundance of grace. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall we do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. They're picking up rocks. The Lord said to Moses, pass them before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. How does God respond to the grumbling of his people? He gives them an abundance of grace. Oh, my kids wish I was this type of parent. <laughs> he is so gracious. Umberto Casuto, he says this in his commentary, he says, God does not intervene in the strife between the people and Moses, neither in regard to the people's allegations against Moses, nor in respect of his countercharges against the people. His attitude is that of a father whose children are in distress and in their distress an altercation breaks out between them and he pays no attention to the wrangling but endeavours only to deliver his children from their trouble. The more I journey with God, the more I read this book, the longer I'm with people, the more I find out that God is even better than what I thought. He is far more gracious than what I realise. He is an abundantly gracious God. And how does he deliver them out of their trouble? Right, because... In some sense, it seems like he's just giving them more water, but there's, there's this rock part of the story. He says to them, here's how I'm going to be with you. And he's told them time and time again the different ways he would be present with them. He's been with them in the cloud and the fire. He's been with them in, in the, the, the plagues. He's been with them in all these different ways. And now he says, I will be with you on the rock. That, that sense of God saying, I'm there on the rock is him saying, the rock is me. That's how you're going to know I'm with you. And he stands before them on this rock. Their question is, is God here? And God's answer is, yes, I am. But he doesn't just give them something. He takes something. So Moses is told to strike the rock with the rod. I am the rock and the rock is me. Now strike it. I will take the blow that they deserve. Take it out on me. Hit the rock. This is clearly a picture pointing to us of Jesus, 
who would take the blow and say, judge me, take it, I'll, I'll take it, I'll absorb it. And as you hit me, grace will come out of me. Livers, uh, rivers of living water will flow from me. This is what is happening here. It's a picture of Jesus clearly. God is taking the strike of judgment that they deserve as unfaithful, whinging, complaining, ungrateful people. And God says, no, I will take that. And as you strike me, I will give them their need. We see this in John 4 with the woman at the well where Jesus offers living water. We see it in John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from me. Uh, Paul speaks about Jesus being the rock in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. This picture of this rock is not just something for thousands of years ago for ancient Israel. This is something for you and me here right now. What is it that you think you need? What is that? For the woman at the well, it's like, man, I just need a drink. For these guys, it's like, we just need to eat and drink. And God's going, listen, there's something that you need that's bigger than that. I'll provide those things. But if I'm going to take you from slavery to glory... You've got to have me. Because there's no such thing as glory. There's no such promised land if I'm not in it. And you don't know me. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy, this is the whole point of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is just telling them everything again and reminding them, listen, if you go down there, they're standing up in the plains of Moab. If you go down there and enter that land, but I'm not there, guess what you don't have? You don't have me, which means you have land and land only. The point of the promised land is that's where I will be. Me, you, and for the Christian, listen, we've been set free from Satan's sin and death. We have been delivered and God is taking us to glory. And in glory is just him. That's it. Who gives a rip about the size of your mansion compared to mine? Okay, maybe me a little bit, but when we get to heaven, the only thing we're going to care about is if God is there. Because what is the point of being there and he ain't there? So the point of this life right now is exactly the same. What is the point of having the house, having the car, having the job, having the spouse, having the kids, having all of the things that culture says we must have if we do not have Yahweh? What is the point? It is God who brings meaning to all of those transcendent, uh, those menial sort of, what's the word? Not transcendent, but the other one, temporal things. I'm a preacher, I've got words. <laughs> Why have that job? Why do that study? Why have that house? Why, why have these things and not have him? But if you have him, these things no longer have you. And you are free. And this is the point of Exodus, that this is a journey in the wilderness. And I think what God wants to say to us today is embrace it. See it as a stepping stone to where God is taking you, not as a stumbling block. Is it hard? Yes. Do we get thirsty? Yes. Do we get hungry? Yes. But we have God. 
and he will provide the needs for his children. And he's already done that. For them, it was parting of the Red Seas. For us, it's through his work on the cross. The trial is not evidence that God does not love you. That's already been proven. Lean into Jesus through the trial. Lean into him in the wilderness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as the band come up. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.